speaking engagements. But I wanted to keep this one because you guys mean a lot to me. There's a, the people in the sanctuary who've known me when, you know, I was snotty-nosed and louder than normal and, you know, a, l- a little bit annoying and, and maybe even sure of myself. And, and they helped disciple and walk with me. So even though I'm not with you guys week in and week out, Tower Road means a lot to me. And it's, it's, it's good to see your faithfulness. It's good to, to be with you all this morning. And I'm always grateful to be here. Let's just open up in a word of prayer. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving yourself up for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for living in us. Father God, we thank you for loving us so perfectly. Lord, help us now. Open up our hearts and open up our minds. Help us to hear from you this morning. Help us to be challenged. Help us to grow. But most of all, help us to learn what it means to live and love like Jesus Christ. Learn what it means to be free indeed. Learn what it means to glorify you in everything we say and do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us, and we pray that you teach us how to love one another better and how to love you more. In your holy and precious name, amen. So one of the joys um, of study, so I, I um, started a sermon on uh, a series on First John at our church four years ago. It took me four years to get through it um, because other things would come up, and this was kind of just like for fun, right? And the reason I wanted to preach in First John was because I was very intrigued by something that shows up a lot right, in the, the, the New Testament. Whenever they talk about John, they call him the disciple that Jesus loved, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm like, well, how come he gets that designation? Like, doesn't God love us all equally, you know? And then, but if you go a little bit deeper, you're like, there are other disciples around. Like, how did they let this slide, right? Like, for those of us, all of us who have parents, and if all of those of us who have siblings, can you imagine having a sibling that's like, yes, John, the sibling the parent loved the most, right? I was like, how does this guy get away with this designation time and time again? So I wanted to dive into the Gospel of John, the Epistle of John, and to try to figure out this relationship, you know? And, and one of the things I recognize is that, you know, Jesus in his lifetime spoke to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people right? We, it's funny because we, I, I think sometimes as Christians, we downplay the significance of Jesus because we're like, oh, he's just this little carpenter preaching on the backwoods. And it's like, no, 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 no. That little carpenter actually spoke to thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of people in three years, right? It's amazing, right? That this little backwoods carpenter preached to that many people, right? And of that hundreds of thousands, we believe that what? Maybe thousands actually believed in him, right? Um, of the thousands that believed in him, you know, he had this group of 72 that he sent out right? And he put them in pairs and sent them out to preach the gospel. Then of that 72, he had 12, right? Or if you want to be really liberal, you'll say 11 disciples, because you might not be sure how you feel about Judas, right? Uh, But he had 12 disciples that he sent out. And these are people who lived with him every single day. They saw him interact with them. They saw him do the miracles, but they also saw him hungry, right? They saw him be, be lifted up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they also saw him just loving people, right? And then of those 12 disciples, though, there's this inner circle of four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who seems to be always the closest to him, right? I talk about the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the ones who were there. We talk about when you look in the scriptures, who were his first followers, earliest disciples? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? When you think about Gethsemane, when Jesus is like, not thy will, but not my will, but thy will be done, when Jesus is struggling with this idea of like, man, I really have to do this, God, and God's like, this is the only way, Right? Who is the closest to him are these four disciples. Yet of those four disciples, there's one that gets called the disciple that Jesus loved. So what it points to is that Jesus and John had a very, very special relationship that's worth navigating, right? And we have proof of this special relationship. For example, Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. He's up on the cross, right? But Jesus was also the eldest son in his family. 
their culture was a little bit different than ours. In our culture, if we're so blessed, you know, when our parents pass away, we inherit stuff, right? In that culture, like, before your parents even get the passing away, it's like they took care of you. At the end of your life, you were expected to take care of them, right? They did all the work in the beginning. You did the work at the end. That's how it was expected. As the oldest son in his family, Jesus was supposed to provide for Mary. Like, that's what that culture believed, right? We believe that John, um, yeah, Joseph, his, his stepfather, had passed away. He had a bunch of other siblings, but that was his job, right? But Jesus came about his father's business. He came to, to show us what God looks like, show us what love looks like. He came to show us that we can live in a way to please God. He came to die, but he also came to be raised again and to, to go, which is another thing that blows me away, that God spoke the world into existence, but Jesus has been working on heaven for thousands of years. Like, that should blow us away, right? And we can argue about what does it mean that God created the world, but, but what we know for sure is that he spoke the world into existence, Right? When he talked about heaven, he said, I go to prepare a place for you, right? But Jesus, before he could go and prepare a place for us, had to figure out Mary, his mom, right? He cared enough about his earthly mother that he was like, it's my job to take care of her. And one of the most beautiful scenes, I think, in all scripture is when he's dying on the cross for our sins, he looks down at John. He says, John, that's your mom. You need to take care of her. Mary, that's now your son, right? Of all the people in the world he could have picked, he picked John. They had a special relationship. So I think when we dive into John, we learn something about what Jesus wants for us from the person who knows him the most. The, the book of 1 John has many great things in there. You know, we learn about witnessing. We learn about church strife, which never happens in church. People don't get along, right? Um, we learn about, you know, what does it mean that Jesus is God? You know, we learn about is it important that Jesus was really man but also God? John navigates all these things. But what I thought about this morning, what I loved about this preaching um, and going through 1 John is something that really surprised me is that John has this message, this beautiful message in 1 John 3 that I miss my entire life. And the reason this is important is because 1 John 3, 18 is probably my favorite verse in the entire Bible. It changed my life, really, right? It says, let us not love, you know, with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth, right? Like the idea that you say you follow Jesus doesn't really matter if your life doesn't show it right? Or you can tell people you love them, but it's probably better that you show them you love, you, you love them. And it's probably even better if they believe that you love them by how you live, right? So that verse changed me. So I've been in First John 3, I would say, for a lot of my Christian life, so 20 plus years. But I missed something for years and years and years. And I want to share that with you this morning because I think if we truly understand the fact that God is greater than our shame, I think we as Christians will start living with a boldness that can really bring light into our world. Have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John 3. I'll be reading verses 19 to 24. 1 John 3, 19 to 24. And I think I'm, um, I'm in the NIV, so it might be a little different than yours, but 1 John 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, how we set our hearts and rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. What's fascinating in 1 John 3 is that John is kind of recapping the entire epistle so far. He has these two big things that he wants you to know, right? The first one is he thinks that every single Christian should abide in God. 
that God lives in you as a blessing, but that your work as Christians is to now live in God. John starts out by talking about how the very beginning of this relationship is you actively believing in Jesus, right? And you have to remember that when John says something, it's all about your action. So again, it's not just by saying, I believe in Jesus. It's like, what does that look like? What does that mean? So for John, you're accepting God's salvation, what we've sung about this morning, Jesus dying on the cross. For John, that's just the very beginning, right? So that's the beginning. And what is, how do we know we believe? John says that you have to follow his commands, right? If you really believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter what you say, you have to follow his commands. And one of the great things about Jesus is that he gives us some commands that aren't really, really easy, but if we truly follow him and we truly believe in him, we're committed to doing them. You know, one of his commands is, you know, live by and surrender to the Spirit. You know, John talks about this all the time. I think one of the greatest questions that God will always ask in your life is simply this, like, do I have your heart? You know, and I think in our culture, when we think about heart, we think about something emotional. We think about something, you know, like, oh, I love him, lovey-dovey, right? But to the ancient Jew and to the ancient Christians, what heart meant was the essence of who you are. Right? So whenever you see heart in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's not talking about something lovey-dovey. He's asking you, do I have your hopes and dreams? Do I have your gifts, skills, and abilities? Do I have the best of you? Do I have your finances? Do I have everything I've blessed you with? Do I have your heart? Right? And John says you have to surrender your heart to God. And at any point, whether you're a Christian for a day or 10 years or 70 years, God's always going to ask you, do you love me? Do I have your heart? Am I the Lord of your hopes? Am I the Lord of your dreams? Am I the Lord of your gifts, skills, and abilities? Am I the Lord of your finances? Am I the Lord of every single gift I've given you? Do I have your heart? And John says the only way you can give God your heart is to surrender to him every single day. Because some of these things are going to be easier to surrender to. You know, like for me, for example, it's very easy to surrender the future to God because I don't know and I can't control it and it's too overwhelming to me. But what might be a little bit harder to surrender to God is, is my children or my finances or my gifts, right? So for me, it's an every single day thing. And John keeps coming back to us. Don't just say you believe in God. Are you actively following his commands? Do you even know what his commands are for you? And are you surrendering to him? And in the second session, we're going to talk about this because John also says, if you believe in God, you got to conquer sin. And John actually brings up this old Jewish concept of something called Timshel. And we're going to talk about that in the second service because John says, this is how God wants you to attack sin. A lot of us are paralyzed by sin. And, and we're going to talk about shame this morning because shame, I think, is a byproduct of sin, right? But John gives us the, book, the blueprint of how God wants us to look at sin. And I'm telling you, I think if you're able to grasp this, right, I think it can change your life as well. So John says, do you believe in God? Are you abiding in God? Are you living in God? That's part of the foundation he makes in 1 John. The second part is actually pretty beautiful. Um, it's something I say all the time. You hear me preach, you hear me pray. I say this all the time because I got it from John. It seemed like a good idea, right? John says, you have to live and love like Christ lived and loved. If you want a mission statement of what it means to be a Christian, if you want you know, a blueprint of what it means to be a Christian, how Jesus lived is how you have to live. How Jesus love is how you have to love. So everyone that Jesus love is how you have to love. And the beauty of this is that the hard part about this is that how Jesus love is very different 
than how we love as humans. It's very different than how we love as families. It's very different than how we love as Americans even. It's very different as how we love as this world, right? How does Jesus love? Who's on the margins? Who's left out? Who is this world not for? Who's oppressed? That's who Jesus loves. Jesus is the one who sacrificed the privilege of heaven to bring all of us home. Um, St. Augustine, who's a, a, a great church father, and I, whenever I talk about St. Augustine, I always like to point out that he's African because I think it helps people. Um, yeah, he's African. A lot of good theologians are from Africa. Actually, I would say most of Western theology is actually African, but that's another conversation. We can, you have me over for lunch or dinner, you give me food, I'll, I'll wax poetic. But St. Augustine said that when I think about Christianity, the best way I can understand it is that we are called to be a home and a hospital. And I think what's beautiful about that is that we make Christianity about everything that it's not. But if we're a home, truly a home, does the world find home in us? Does the world find a place, not just to kick off their feet, but a place where they know they are loved, a place they know where they're accepted, a place where they know they're one of us? But then if we're a hospital, does the world know that we're a place they can turn to when they're hurting? And that's not just us as a church. That's not just us as Terror Road. That's us individually. Every single relationship. Do the people you know and love know they can turn to you? Do they see a home when they look into your eyes? Do they feel peace that they can be healed when they received your touch? John says, my commandment, Jesus' commandment, is you have to love one another. Another one of Jesus' commandments is you have to love the brethren. Right? You have to love the church. And I think this is one of the things that's very, very important, especially for my generation, because we think we're the first ones to go through our 20s, and we get to maybe our 30s, but we go through our 20s, and we're just like, man, everything the church is not, this is what the church is not doing, this is what the church is not doing. And John's like, that's great, but here's the thing, you're the church. I think it's a really, really eye-opening for me. I, I, it took me until 30 to realize that. I spent my whole 20s raging about everything the church wasn't, right? And at some point, I was just like, wait, but you're, you're the church. And that should change our perspective, right? We're not called to just complain about everything we're not. We're called to use our gifts to make us what we can be, right? So we're the church. And John comes over and over again when you read through 1 John. And I want to challenge you to do that this week. Read through these five chapters. Over and over again, John will say, like, you have to love the church. You have to love the brethren. And the last thing, when he talks about living as Jesus did, he says, you know, you got to do what's right. You have to lay down your life. Martin Luther King once said, the life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? I think Jesus will change this to, my most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for your brothers and sisters? What are you doing for me? Because that's who we follow, the one who laid down his life. So this idea of abiding in God and, and choosing to follow God, and this idea of living and loving like Christ lived in love, they formed the foundation of 1 John. The crazy part about this, though, is when I was writing this sermon originally, I was really, really hungry, so I started thinking about a Philly cheesesteak. You have to forgive me. I'm from Philadelphia, right? Now, some of you guys are close enough to Philadelphia that you might think you know what a cheesesteak is, right? Um, you might even think places around here make cheesesteaks. They don't. Um, you might even think they make Philly cheesesteak. They really don't, right? But when I, and I take this what you will. Hopefully it helps you. It helped me, right? But when I looked at this foundation of, of are we abiding in God? Are we truly abiding in God? And are we truly living and loving like Christ? What I realized is when John puts them together, it's like the bread of the cheesesteak. You know, why is that important? See, if you're not from Philly, you don't know why that's important. It's important because the bread actually makes the cheesesteak, right? I don't know if it's something in our water, you know, like, but I've had cheesesteak in other places and the bread's just not this good. And I think if you want to understand 1 John, you got to think of it as a cheesesteak. Now, some of you are sitting there and like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I make steakums. That's great. God bless you. 
you know, but that's not a cheesesteak, right? I know there's also some of you who are out there just like, well, you know, my, my corner store, they, they make really good cheesesteaks. They put onions and peppers and all that. God bless them too. That's still not a cheesesteak, right? It has to start with this Philadelphia bread, right? So I think if you want to understand John and 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, you have to understand the foundation. And the foundation is always going to be, are you abiding in Christ? And are you living and loving like Jesus, right? That's where he starts off. Now, again, some of us, we make cheesesteak. You know, we put fixins and all this stuff. And when you read through First John, you'll get all this stuff. You'll get your peppers. You'll get your, I guess, what else you guys, onions maybe and all that stuff, right? But I'm from Philly, and our cheesesteak consists of the bread, the meat, and then you could get a little bit of onions, but it's either whiz with or whiz without. That's it. That's it. And I know some of you are just like, cheese whiz? That sounds disgusting. I'm like, well, that's fine. That's how we make it right? And we invented it. So obviously we're right, you know? You might think you made it better, but you're wrong. And it's fine. We can all be wrong about different things. It's okay, right? Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because I kind of feel this morning that the meat of our entire sermon this morning, the the foundation, the bread might be, are we living in Jesus? And are we living like Jesus, right? That's the bread. But I think the meat and the substance, the core of this message this morning is simply this. Do you know that God is greater than your sin and your shame? Do you understand and do you believe that God is greater than your sin and your shame? Because sisters and brothers, what I found is that being a Christian doesn't make our shame disappear. What I found that being a Christian doesn't make our sin disappear. But I think if we know and truly understand that God's greater than our sin and our shame, we can walk in freedom. In 1 John 3, 19, John says, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. What's fascinating is that in the first half of 1 John 3, we're going to talk about Tim Shell downstairs, but John talks about how you're supposed to deal with shame. He talks about how you're supposed to deal with sin. But now in 19 and 24, he talks about how you're supposed to deal with shame. And what what John simply says is this. When you think about your shame, you have to know and you have to accept that God is greater than any shameful thing you've done. You have to know and you have to accept that God is greater than any anxiety you feel. And what's fascinating is I talk about how your heart is the essence of who you are. Jeremiah once says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond all cure. Who can understand it? What's fascinating about that is what John's trying to do is move us from this expectations that we're supposed to free ourselves from shame, from anxiety. We're supposed to free ourselves from all the bad that we've done. And John says, just come back to the cross. Just come to Jesus who loves you. Just lay it at his feet and let him deal with it. Let him set you free. And what's fascinating is I think even in our culture, we do a lot of confusing about what is actually shame. So I did a little bit of research. You know, I like research. I went to the American Psychological Institute because they never get anything wrong there, right? And I was like, how can we explain what shame is? Because I think what John is talking about isn't how we all say what shame is. And what I found is that the American Psychological Institute had three different things that they think is important for you to understand what shame is. The first one is shame, right, which is different than embarrassment which is also different than guilt, right? And a lot of times we mix up those three things. So I was like, let's tell stories to explain what these are. Shame, first of all, is not embarrassment. Embarrassment is like awkward discomfort. Um, It's this idea of like something knocking you off your, for example, 
Um, I used to ride bike a lot, you know, in the city of Harrisburg. Harrisburg is like one big neighborhood, right? So I used to ride my bike everywhere. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're riding your bike, you know, it's like you sit on it and it's good. Then you ride with one hand and that's an accomplishment. Then you ride with two hands, that's an accomplishment. Then you hold the two hands and then you stand up on your bike, that's an accomplishment. Now, we're all different, so we did those on different varieties. Um, but I was riding my bike one day in Strawberry Square, which is one of during the work week, probably the most busy place in the city. You know, there's like a lot of government buildings, uh, hospital, um, nonprofits. Basically, a lot of people go here for lunch. There's a lot of people outside, right? And this one day, I'm riding my bike, and I get this genius idea that like, man, I can ride without hands, and I can ride standing, but I've never stood with no hands, right? And I know what you're thinking, that's ridiculous, but hey, bear with me, right? So I get this wise, great idea, and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ride in the middle of Strawberry Square with no hands and standing up. Now, you don't have to use your imagination to realize that as soon as I stood up, what happened, right? I tumbled over my bike, and the bike rolls over me, and I fall, and I look up, and there's only a couple hundred people everywhere, right? <laughs> that feeling that you're imagining, that's embarrassment. That's very different than shame and very different than guilt, right? Shame is not guilt. Guilt is, you know, shame. Guilt is I did something bad. So, for example, my two-year-old in the last month or two has decided that, like, who needs to sleep all night, you know? And I have a confession. My wife's not here, so I can confess. Um, so sometimes when she comes down at 2 in the morning, you know, you usually give her milk and you put her back to bed. But I'm like, you know what? It's quiet. Let's do some work. You watch some tablet or something, right? So, like, that's doing something bad, right? That's guilt, right? Like, it's just like, I should probably put her back to bed, but I'm like, eh, she can stay up. It's fine, right? That's guilt. There's an author by the name of Brene Brown, and she says, this is how we need to understand guilt and shame. Guilt is I did something bad, and shame is, I am bad. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between I did something bad. There's a difference between saying, I am bad. And that's what we're talking about because shame, lasting shame, the idea that I'm bad often comes from stuff that's happened to us. It comes from stuff we've done. It's come from stuff we've had to live through. And all these things makes us feel like we are bad. And I think the reason we need to talk about it is because as Christians, if we honestly believe we are bad, we will never truly know the love of God. If we honestly believe that we are incapable of good, we will never truly be set free. Shame says, I am bad. The thing about shame is that it accuses you. It convicts you. And in theory, it, it really, it can, it can imprison you. Shame lies to you, too. When you have this idea that I'm bad, you start to believe that I am stupid. That I am a failure, that I'm a bad person, that I'm a fraud, I'm putting on all these masks, I'm never good enough, I'll never be good enough, I don't matter. All these bad things that happened to me, I deserve this hurt. I'm inadequate. You know what, I shouldn't have even been born because I'm so unlovable. This is what shame does. And whether or not you're a Christian, we all struggle with these on all these different levels. But I want to help set us free this morning because I think what John points us to is if God is greater than our shame, when shame says that we're stupid, we need to remember a God who says you are brilliant. When shame says we're a failure, we need to remember a God who says it's okay to learn and grow. When shame says, you know, you're a bad person, we have a God who says it's okay, you're forgiven. When shame says, you know, you're never good enough, we have a God who says, it's okay, I sent Jesus for you. He's good enough. When sin says, you don't matter, God again says, I sent Jesus for you. He's good enough. And now I sent my spirit, which now lives in you because you believe. When shame says, you deserve this hurt, God says, I want to set you free because you deserve freedom. 
When sin says you're inadequate, God says, I'll complete the work in you. You're not finished yet, but that's okay because I still got more to do for you. When sin says you're not good enough, You'll never be good enough. You shouldn't have been born even. God says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I spoke the world into existence, but I took the time to make you. Paul says we are God's workmanship. That means we're the crown of his creation. That means even though he spoke the world into existence, he took every single time to make you, you. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we, we, we learn that shame, you know, Satan is walking around like this roaring lion. Right? And Peter calls us, he says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him for he cares of you. Then he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And what's fascinating, I've learned in my brief 35 years, what's fascinating is that we as Christians, we might be aware of the lion and the things that we struggle with, the big things or the things to stay away from or the things that aren't good. But I think the greatest lion that shame and Satan uses, well, the greatest lion that Satan uses is our shame because that's the one we don't expect. That's the one we leave unchecked. And these thoughts of not being good enough, these thoughts of not being a good enough Christian, these thoughts of not being a good enough father, not being a good enough wife, not being a good enough son or daughter, these thoughts that paralyze us is what Satan is using to keep your light under a bushel. And I think if we really want to fight Satan, we have to start giving God our shame. Because shame needs secrecy, and God wants you to make it known. Shame needs silence, and God wants you to use your voice. One of my best friends is, is an alcoholic. And, and one of the most fascinating, life-transforming things I've seen in him is that now that he's walked out of the secrecy of his alcoholism, now that he's gone to treatment, God has given him a voice, and he's speaking into the life of other alcoholics with the love of Jesus in a way I could never have imagined before. Shame needs your secrecy. God wants your voice. Shame needs judgment. Satan needs you to feel like you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. God wants you to know you'll forever be his daughter. You'll forever be his son. And yes, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, but there's also nothing you can do to make God love you less. When John talks about sin, he says you should rule over it. But I also think when God thinks about our shame, if he's greater than our hearts, he wants us to rule over it. So I want to close with just four things I think can help us deal with shame. The first one is we have to trust God. We have to be honest with God. One of the things I love about the Psalms is that, you know, I think a lot of times when we pray, we're like, we try to come up with our cute little phrases or little go-to phrases, and God just wants us to be honest. If you read through the Psalms, you're like, wait, David, you really felt that way? You know, David in Psalm 139 is this beautiful psalm about how God created us and God's awesome. And then at the very end, he's just like, I wish you would kill my enemies. He's like, really? Like, how did we get here? You know, like we went from fearfully and wonderfully made and God being everywhere to killing people, David, really? But I think God wants us to be honest. And I think if we trust God, we can learn something from the Lion King. There's a great scene in the Lion King, which is also the greatest Disney movie ever. Don't, don't argue with me. You'll be wrong and it's fine. Um, 
In The Lion King, there's a scene where, you know, uh, Simba is out living the Hakuna Matata life, right? It means no worries. And, and he's wayward and he's crazy. And, and, and Zazu brings him to the river and he's at the river and he sees this image of his father, right? And this scene is, again, you probably saw this and say, oh, that's a cute scene. This scene changed my life, right? Because in that scene, he's looking at his father, right? And I don't know if you remember the words of Mufasa, but it goes something like this. Remember who you are. I think we as Christians, if we want to deal with shame, we have to remember who we are. And more than that, we have to remember whose we are. Because our shame might define us, but if we're children of God, we can be set free. Our shame might limit us and paralyze us, but if we're children of God, we can be light to the darkness. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. So when you battle these these deep feelings of shame and regret and I'm not good enough, remember that God says, you will always be my child. You will always be loved by me. You can always come home again. Question then becomes, how can you grow your trust in God? And that becomes your homework. Figure out how you can grow your trust in God. What are things that have built your trust in God and keep doing them? The second one is I think we have to trust Jesus, the Lamb of God. Let Jesus be the one who takes your sin. I was trying to get Joey to sing All in All, but he wouldn't do it. And then Josh wouldn't do it either. But you remember that song, All in All? It was a great little chorus we sang way too much, right? Um, But there's a line in there where it says what? Taking my sin, my cross, my shame, rising again, I bless your name. You are my all in all. We have to be willing to let God take away our shame. We have to be willing. You know, this week I dealt with shame in a a weird way. You know, last Saturday I found out, that clock right? I want to make sure I'm not going to, oh, I'm good, I'm perfect. Um, Last Saturday, over the course of six hours, I found out that two friends from high school passed away. Um, both tragedies, both unforeseen. One was 37, one was 36. And the, the feeling of shame that I wasn't prepared for, because I wasn't prepared for them dying, was like I realized, like, oh, my gosh, I've been such a terrible friend. I've let all these years come between us without keeping in touch. And I was overwhelmed not just with grief and the shock of their passing, but by the fact that I wasn't a good enough friend. And uh, I had a, a mentee who I worked with for years, and, and she didn't know any of this was going on. And she sent me this song, and, and I just want to read the words. I, when we think about what does it mean to give it to Jesus, these words kind of uplifted me from that shame, and they kind of redeemed, I would say, just my thinking. And, 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 and yesterday was a celebration of one of my friends, instead of me feeling all this guilt. And what the words of the song, is a song called God is Good. It's a young guy out of Chicago named Jonathan McReynolds. It's a beautiful song, and this became my prayer all week. And it says, may your struggles keep you near the cross. May your troubles show you that you need God. May your battles end the way they should. And may your bad days prove that God is good. May your whole life prove that God is good. We got to trust Jesus. Because if we trust Jesus, then we can take the struggles and shame to the cross. If we trust Jesus, we can know that when we're troubled, he's overcome the world. Right? We have a God who's overcome the world, but we also know that if we trust Jesus and we give him our troubles, our troubles can just show us that we need God, and that's okay. It's okay to not have it all together. It's okay to need help. But also then, may your bad days prove that God is good. And that stuck with me because I think a lot of us, we eschew bad days. We don't like bad days, right? No one likes bad days, but I love that line that even in the bad days, they can prove that your God loves you and he's there. We have to get better at going and trusting Jesus. The last one I would say is we have to trust the Holy Spirit. 
And I think we as Christians don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And I'm not talking about doing backflips with Jesus. Although some people, they say they get the Spirit, that's what they do. I've never done a backflip for Jesus. Maybe someday when I'm a better Christian, I will, right? But what I mean by the Holy Spirit living in us, you have to understand that David was a man after God's own heart, right? Of all the people in Scripture, this was the one where God says, my relationship with him was special. He truly loved me, right? Yet David, because of his sin and shame, what he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But every single one of us in this room who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, every single one of us will never have to say that because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. I don't think we understand the privilege of that position that David, who's remembered thousands of years later, that Jews and, and Muslims even and Christians adore this man and talk about how great he was, right? He said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, but every single one of us will never have to say that because God's Spirit now dwells in you and dwells in you forever. And the beauty of that means that when you struggle, you can say, God, help me, and he will. The beauty of that is when you struggle and you feel not good enough, you can go to God and he says, my spirit is in you and it's transforming you. Yes, you had a bad day, but I'm still good. Yes, you have a struggle, but bring it to me. Yes, you have trouble. In this world, you may have trouble, but I can give you my peace. Trust the spirit. And the last one I think that really helps us, trusting God, trusting Jesus, trusting the spirit is this will wrap us up with John. John always says, love the church. And I think what we need to do is figure out how our community can help us with our shame. Um, there's a band out of England who I love and adore. Well, only their first album. But that's another conversation. Um, the last two weren't as good. It just weren't. Um, it's a band by the name of Mumford & Sons. It was uh, a guy whose parents were missionaries and church planners in England. Marcus Mumford blew up. Great first album. Eh, second, third. That's just me. Again, if you, can, you can argue with me, but you'd be wrong, and that's okay. But in that first album, he has this song called Tim Shell. And what I love about this song is that he talks about community and how do we deal with sin, how we deal with shame. He says, as brothers, we will stand hand in hand. I think that's what we got to do with shame because shame wants you to be by yourself. And shame wants you to feel like you're all alone. And shame wants you to feel like you're not good enough. But I'm telling you, one of the joys of this community you sit with is if you have relationships with people who love and care about you, when you say you're not good enough, they will point you back to Jesus. When you don't believe you're good enough, they will say, I know you're good enough because I've seen what God has done in you. We have to trust God. We have to trust Jesus. We have to trust the Spirit. But sisters and brothers, we also have to pledge to trust one another. And if we go back to our African brother, St. Augustine, we have to come back to this idea. All of us are called to be a home in a hospital. So the question becomes at work, at school, in your family, in your relationships, in the interactions on the street, how are you being a home to the world around you? A world of strangers, a world of foreigners, a world of people who feel like they don't belong, a world of people who are hurting. How are you personally being a home to them? And here's the joy I love about Jesus, is that all of us in this room are equipped to change this world. All of us have gifts and skills and abilities. And sisters and brothers, I'm telling you, if you're saying, God, this is my gift, use me to change this world. Use me to help this world. Use me to shine light. God says the darkness is passing and the true light is always shining. 
As Christians, we're not just called to say Jesus is the light of the world. We're called to follow a Jesus who says you are the light of the world. And if you're willing to give your life to Jesus, if you're willing to give your gifts to Jesus, your skills to Jesus, your abilities to Jesus, your everything to Jesus, if you're willing to surrender your all to Jesus, we can move from complaining about how broken the world is to start partnering with God to put it together. We can move from stop complaining about the darkness in the world and start remembering that we're called to be the light. We can move from shame to freedom and love and Jesus Christ shining forever. Amen? Let's pray together. Father and our God, we thank you this morning that none of us are defined by the worst thing that we've done. We thank you this morning that none of us are defined by a Satan who lies to us and says that we're not good enough, we'll never be good enough. We thank you this morning that none of us have to be defined by our shame of what's been done to us or what we've done or, or what we can't overcome. Lord, help us to be defined by you. You set us free. You love us. You forgive us. And you equip us. God, help us to be light wherever we see darkness. Help us to bring healing wherever we see brokenness. Help us to most of all shine for your glory. God, teach us how to live and love like your son Jesus our Christ lived and loved. Help us to be free of shame so that we can walk in freedom and serve you. In your holy and precious name, amen.